Hey everyone, and welcome to episode three of Keep Wise with Keepingly. I am your host, Daniel Smith, and today we have another fantastic episode to bring to you guys. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Amira Raveno B. So Amira, how are you today? I'm doing great, Daniel. I mean, it's a wonderful day. We got sun on the West Coast. I'll take it. Amir Ravenobay, CEO, co-founder of The Home Dispatch, here to have a wonderful conversation. Who do we have today, Daniel? Ah, sure. So we have somebody who I consider the, it's like royalty of the housing world. He has like 45 years of experience in the housing space. His name is Joe Venturin. Uh, Joe has stints in the private sector, top federal agencies on Capitol Hill uh, during both administration. Joe firmly believes that a home is where the heart is, and he has dedicated his career to housing policy and related financial and property issues. Uh, in, in my estimation, you know, no one knows housing policy like Joe because he spent 45 years and FYI, full disclosure, Joe is an advisor to Keepingly and what we're building. So I have gotten to know Joe and, you know, I think that people should be able to really uh, tap into the wealth of Joe's experiences and knowledge. And so, you know, here we have Joe, some of Joe has a passion and an interest in closing the minority home ownership gap and mortgage financial reforms. And before we jump into it, I just want to hit on some of the things that Joe has accomplished. Um, so he has spent time and his achievements include the American Home Ownership and Economic Opportunity Act of 2000, the Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act, the Homeowners Insurance Availability Act, and the establishment of the Committee for Affordable Housing and Health Care facility needs of senior citizens. Uh, the Section 8 program and the Cranton Gonzalez National Affordable Housing Act. And all of that was really a mouthful. Um, just to see that we have, you know, really a wonderful uh, person and personality to episode three of the Keep Wise podcast. And I am Daniel Smith, uh, founder of Keeping Me, which is really focused on helping homeowners to be able to manage, maintain, and grow their home. So let's jump into this conversation. And, you know, I'm going to give Joe the first question since I, 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 I have so much fun um, memories of, you know, times, you know, spent talking about housing. So Joe, tell us what has inspired you to get into your into this world of housing what is your background in terms of getting into this sure uh first of all thank you amira nice meeting you and uh daniel thank you and thank you for your uh continuous work with keepingly and this great series of keep wise uh i've watched the first two i may not watch this one because familiarity breeds contempt but uh whatever so uh, my background, first of all, uh, 45 years, I'm cutting my years. I came to Washington, D.C. in 1971. I ran an elevator in the U.S. Senate from 71 to 73 while I was going to graduate school at American University. 
upon getting my master's degree from American University, I started with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in 1974. I was at HUD from 1974 to 1983. From 1983 to the year 2000, I was at the U.S. House of Representatives. And all of that legislation that you rattled off from my bio was some of the work uh, that I worked on during that 18-year tenure. Then uh, two years after that, I worked uh, for the regulator of the federal home loan banks. And then uh, from there, I retired from federal government after 35 years. And I went to work for the National Association of Realtors, headed up their uh, policy shop. And I was there 18 years and I retired from there two years ago. So needless to say, housing is in my blood, in my background, et cetera. Um, what has led me um, to what I am doing now um, is basically my, my extensive background, uh, both at a U.S. federal agency dealing with federal housing policy and um, also working for the U.S. House of Representatives, the Committee on Banking, Finance, and Urban Affairs, in particular, the Housing Subcommittee, um, and then going on to work for the National Association of Realtors, Housing, home ownership uh, is in my blood. Uh, what has really um, gotten me uh, into um, uh, passion for closing the minority home ownership gap is a little bit of the events of George Floyd, uh, but more importantly, the academic research that has come out where the, the home ownership rate uh, for minorities and blacks is basically uh, where it was when the Civil Rights Act of 1968 first happened. So um, something has to be done, and uh, it's my passion uh, to work on that. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm being brief. <laughs> um, and, and I know you are. Um, you know, part of really what I find so fascinating listening to that is number one, the amount of different agencies that you have been at. Uh, number two, how you have, I would say, remained in this same sphere of during that time period, but you've continuously been able to um, pull the levers of what you, the experiences that you have had to be able to um, create this body of work over that time period um, to be able to accomplish some of the things that you have done and in, in especially, you know, just even rattling off from your bio. But what has, do you think, especially from uh, housing, if, if you started from 45 years ago when you got into the housing industry, till when you left the National Association of Realtors two years ago, what would you see um, has been able to allow you to be able to like build from step to step during that period? Yeah, a very interesting question. Uh, I'm gonna couch it. Um, one, of, one of my quotes that I live by is something called perception is reality. Uh, when I was a young professional, I was very fact-oriented. Everything was fact and factually based, et cetera. 
facts are good, but it's all in the communication. You have to communicate what you're what you're dealing with, um, and you have to know people in this town. Every, everything we do, it's a relationship business. Uh, but in this town, dealing with policy, advocacy, getting things done, it's not what you know. It's, excuse me. Yeah, it's not what you know. It is who you know. So relationships are very important. Uh, being uh, direct with people, honest with people, uh, and transparent with people. Um, I'd say those are the, you know, the, the major um, ingredients. Um um, to go on. And this is one of the things that I'm doing in my post-retirement. I, over my uh, close to 50 years, I've met a lot of people in this town. I know a lot of people. Um, and I've always associated myself with smarter people. And Daniel, I'll throw you in there, even though sometimes we, we get into tits for tat. Um, but um, that's how you get things done. Uh, know smarter people, know the right people, and get things done. And also, can I just hop? Yeah, go on. No, I was just gonna just hop in. I think I read something about your first job and how you learned how to politically strategize. Can you just share that with everyone? Oh yeah, my first job. Um, I'll throw the audience. My first job was called was a vertical transportation engineer. And what that is, that means an elevator operator. Um, I, uh, when I came down here to graduate school to go to American University, I got a patronage job with the U.S. Senate, in particular, the architect of the Capitol. The architect of the Capitol is in, in, in charge of all of the physical plant of the U.S. Capitol. So I ran an elevator in the U.S. Senate. I ran an elevator in the U.S. Senate from 1971 to 1973. Typically, these jobs are like a half year or a year, but since my graduate school work, um, I did it on the slow route uh, because I really enjoyed running the elevator. My elevator shift was from 7.30 in the morning till one in the afternoon, and I went to class in the afternoon. But that job was just phenomenal because I met a lot of people, including the current president of the United States, Senator Joe Biden had just gotten real, just got elected, and he just got elected uh, with tragedy where he lost his wife and uh, two children. Um, so it's really funny looking back at my life, looking at the TV, looking at the president of the United States, and I, and then I ran him up as, in the elevator at the age of 32. Um, so that that career that that career was um, basically. Um, a real foundation for everything else uh, that I did uh, in Washington, D.C. and in the field of housing. Basically, I met a lot of people. I mean, it's phenomenal, the people I met. I worked there during the Watergate um, hearings. It was phenomenal. In fact, um, the day I left the uh, elevator corps uh, was August 9th. My birthday was August 10th. Nixon resigned that same day I left the elevator corps. Um, and surprisingly uh, enough, the U.S. Housing Act of 1974 was also enacted into law. I can remember those dates. But, Amira, that, uh, you, you rattled my brain, and, and I can remember, but that was, uh, that was uh, 
the origin of my career, and it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal career. Having said that, the events that happened January 6th um, were very troubling since I worked in that building. And when I worked in that building in 1974, it was, it was open to the public, no gates, no magnometers, nothing. And then uh, when I worked for 18 years for the House of Representatives, I worked on the House side of the Capitol. And back then, we had some minor incidences. We had some shootings. There were some shootings in uh, uh, majority leader DeLay's office where they, uh, they had to shut down the Capitol, but nothing like the January 6th. But the thing is, when I look at the Capitol, it's got fond memories um, uh, to me. Um, and it's just an interesting vantage point uh, and perspective to put things when what I continue to do what I do. Fantastic. Um, you know, just, just you walking through that and I'm, tr I'm listening and I'm trying to picture, you know, just the uh, stark difference between then and now and, and where we have come, but, you know, let's jump into some housing topics. So we, we understand who Joe is. So Joe, um, 45 years in, um, having started at, you know, the capital, then you, your first job at the Department of Housing. Um, for you, 45 years later, what has really, I would say, been the difference in 45 years between what you saw when you were at HUD to present day in terms of what has really changed in terms of policy or what, what ha for you has been, you know, some yeah, of right. the um, evolution that you have seen? Right. Well, let me, let me mention two things. Let me mention uh, what probably hasn't changed. When I started HUD, I worked on the Section 8 Experimental Allowance Program which is it's called Section 8 EHAP, which now it's called the Section 8 Voucher Program. That is the rental payment program where the, the federal government subsidizes uh, low-income tenants' rent. Um, and now they're called vouchers. Back then, we had Section 8 existing housing, Section 8 new construction, where the subsidy was attached to the unit. That program went away. But basically now we have, it's called uh, Section 8 Housing Choice vouchers, HCV. Um, in that program, um, I started working on that program, and um, it was interesting. I worked on it at HUD. I worked on legislation on it at um, uh, when I was at the U.S. House of Representatives. When I was at the Realtors, we were more single-family focused, so I really didn't do much on it, but I did do much on it because right now, there is a political issue in our country called source of income, where a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of um, communities do not want, a lot of uh, landlords or housing authorities do not want to use the housing voucher. So a lot of communities um, uh, uh, do not allow that. And, and advocates that want these vouchers used more are going to state and local legislatures saying uh, you cannot deny, um, uh, they, 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 you can't deny 
uh, use of the voucher based on the source of income, meaning that it's a Section 8 voucher. Um, that has really not changed that much. We have 18 states that I believe have that as a state requirement saying that uh, you can't discriminate on Section 8 based on the source, source of income. Um, and that really is a, is a shame because uh, just recently with the moratorium, with the uh, COVID thing, we have billions and billions of dollars of emergent rental assistance. And a lot of this money cannot be used, one, because states maybe can't administratively uh, get it out. But the, the other part is landlords do not want, want, to, want to take Section 8. And they don't want to take Section 8 because the federal program is so bureaucratic and they don't want to go through all the federal uh, requirements of inspections, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of one area that has not changed that much. One area that has changed and changed for the better, when I was on the Hill, the big housing debate was always more money, more money, more money. Everyone, the advocates wanted more resources, more resources, more resources. And that was a, a, an uphill fight um, uh, in the Congress um, uh, to get that to happen. Uh, as you all know, HUD historically has had um, some intrinsic, some chronic problems, scandals, et cetera. Um, and the Congress really didn't want to give, um, you know, HUD the money uh, to do its job. The thing that's now happened for the better, I think now in housing policy, we have somewhat sufficient fiscal resources. The problems now is we, we may have um, uh, uh, capacity problems with some state and local areas. But I think what the bigger problem now is um, we have a lot of, uh, you know, the zoning issues, local, local uh, problems at the local area, getting a lot of uh, these uh, resources uh, used. Um, and that is changing. Um, and it's changing with mixed feelings. We have a big issue out there called missing middle throughout a lot of the countries. Missing middle is basically code word for changing single family zoning. And a lot of communities, in my own community of Arlington, Virginia, we have a referendum coming up with our uh, county board in March to open up um, single-family zoning. And a lot of the single-family neighborhoods here do not want that. And, 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 and the missing middle is misconstrued as affordable housing. It isn't affordable housing. Missing middle is to get townhouses, garden apartments, and small units built in these otherwise single-family um, neighborhoods. So that, that's that's another um, issue that is out there. Does that make sense? That makes one hundred percent sense. I, I was I was looking at Amira's face, and I'm I'm wondering what she's thinking. Amira, what's your question? Go ahead. I I can see it. <laughs> I can see you have that question coming on. Well, I, I, I hear you mention the challenge of this missing middle. So I, I, my assumption is, since you've been in this industry, you actually probably have some innovative ideas that are not, we don't see today. So what do you see as some of the solutions? Yeah, that? yeah. Well, one of the solutions is basically in messaging. 
and it's got to be messenger. You know, Missing Middle came out um, in the Turner Center at Berkeley. Has done two great papers that I would uh, uh, your listeners um, should should go to the Turner uh, Center, Berkeley, um, in uh, California. Have done two great papers on Missing Middle. Um, a lot of it is messaging. Um, in my own county here, I think one way to do it is uh, our county is a very we, our county is a very small county, and it overlooks uh, Washington D.C. right along the Potomac River. We're extremely small. We have like two hundred eighty thousand uh, uh, population. Um, and we've had, we have these single-family neighborhoods that have been long held and entrenched, et cetera. We also have three major road corridors, Langston Boulevard, Wilson Boulevard, Route 50, and Columbia Pike. Actually, four major transportation um, uh, arteries. So I really think this whole idea of workforce housing, missing middle, um, we should, our county should be developing more along those transportation areas rather than getting into a political fight of, of, of moderating single family zoning in these heretofore 100% single family neighborhoods. So that's, 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 that's a primary recommendation there. The other recommendation is basically learning how to message this issue and communicate better um, uh, to the local people. Okay. Um, I think I lost Amira for a second, but we'll just continue on. Okay. Um, so essentially, I hear you about the missing middle. Um, and a lot of what you have gone through so far is really, I would say, policy-oriented issues. Um, however, for the local person, you know, who, yeah, policy is there. But you know what, Joe? You've spent 45 years in the industry, and this is their, their mindset to you. All I want to know is how can I be able to afford that house that I want? How would you approach that situation and that scenario? Because Mr. Joe, you have 45 years in the housing landscape and in the housing world. Um, right now we have a bunch of issues, you know. So how can that person, and we know that there are, you know, 28 million people who claim to want to buy houses this year. So they are radically focused on trying to figure out okay how can i find that house and so it, you know that 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 for them is the missing middle because they can't they right. want a house the house that they can possibly afford uh can possibly get is way too expensive or they get priced out so for them their missing middle is uh, i want to be able to afford a house and something that i like so so what what advice do we right. give to them Okay, well, <laughs> um, affordability, first of all, right now, currently, the biggest problem um, in the housing arena that we have is supply. We do not have enough of the supply of housing, and I'm looking at, you know, the, the not millionaire housing, not Dan Schneider. Dan Schneider, the owner of the Redskins, 
has a uh, $39 million home here along the Potomac River that's up for sale. So that supply isn't a problem. We have a supply at the bottom end, at the entry and the, the next move up. That is the problem we have. So one is supply. So if we have more supply, prices will go down. Right now, prices are high over the pandemic uh, robust nature of real estate. And now we have rising interest rates because of our inflation that is, that is, that is uh, not helping getting people uh, into housing. But let's focus back on the minority um, home ownership gap. Um, I think three or four years ago, Freddie Mac um, did a study uh, and the Urban Institute has this and documented it, that there is around 1.1 million mortgage eligible African-Americans that are qualified for a mortgage, all right? So there's an inventory of otherwise qualified people. The problem is there's not a supply. And in some areas, you've got the inertia of uh, lack of resources or whatever. So um, I really think we have enough programs. You've got Fannie and Freddie have programs, FHA, uh, 5% down program. Um, and now there's a new thing called special purpose credit programs um, that the uh, uh, that the the conservator of Fannie and Freddie uh, announced. Um, and certain banks are stepping up to the plate, Bank of America in particular, um, um, to do these special purpose credit programs. And let me tell you, these special purpose credit programs are perfectly legal under ACOA, et cetera. And we're not reinventing the wheel of the 2000, 2007 um, uh, housing bust where people were getting were getting mortgages that didn't qualify, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think there's good hope on the horizon um, for these people coming to stepping up to the plate um, to come up with um, financing to serve this unmet need population. Okay, yeah, um, and that is that is particularly, I would say. Some of those programs you've mentioned, you know, I've written a piece that was published in Fast Company talking about special credit programs. So I know exactly, you know, some of these initiatives that you have mentioned. Um, and it is critically important, I think, that we just really spend some time trying to help those who want to get into the space, because whether or not it's issues around rent control or rent prices being too high. Those who have to move back in with their parents because, hey, I can't afford rent. Or we have the new phenomenon of persons who are pooling resources to be able to um, afford. Um, we do realize that there is a large um, gap in the space for that type of um, affordability and that access to being able to afford. So it's critically important that we address it. And I think that, you know, my next question to you would be, you know, if when you started in this whole journey um, at the Department of Housing and seeing where we are now, um, 
Do you think that we have moved fast enough in terms of addressing some of these problems? And the reason why I ask is we went through the whole um, 2008 crisis where, you know, houses were sold for penny on the dollar sometimes, you know, um, people just got rid of some of these houses. But here we are 2008, 12 years later, and we're facing a different issue, but prices are houses at the highest level ever so did we as a, a society manage the crisis that we had well and did we do enough planning because we are at a stage now where we, we're pricing out the bottom uh the, the top is fine as, as you've rightly pointed out but those at the middle and the bottom are effectively priced out and so how and and, and i'm asking you this because it's from a policy you know yeah. from a policy perspective did we do enough yeah um, without getting too technical, and this is where we need Dr. Vanessa Perry, we, we didn't do enough. And, and what we didn't do at the federal government, FHA, Fannie and Freddie, they did not talk to each other. All right. Uh, right now, the I, th I believe in them, the FHA limits are technically higher than the Fannie and Freddie limits, the base limits. So we didn't we we didn't coordinate enough at the bottom level and that is one area that i'm hopeful um that um uh, the fha commissioner julia gordon and director sandra thompson um who are very capable uh, leaders in their own right will talk to each other and fix this anomaly uh between fha and fannie and freddie there are two uh two strong programs, their fees have to be realigned because they're going after the same pie and they have to be, they have to be adjusted to take care of that, that bottom spectrum um, uh, of the market. So th th that's a, a, a very good, very good, very good point there. Um, the other thing is I, I really think that with all the attention um, given um, by all organizations now closing the minority home ownership gap. You and I know there's articles on it uh, all the time. Granted, there's a little bit more because Black History Month and people are putting a little bit more, but there has been consistent coverage on um, closing uh, the racial wealth gap. And I think that is great. Once again, my mantra, transparency is the best form of disinfectant. And the more that is written about um, um, the gap, et cetera, um, and from a business sense, the banks are stepping to the plate. Um, and, and, and the most noteworthy, I think, is Bank of America, followed by Wells. Uh, but Bank of America has really uh, come to the bat there, uh, putting their money where its mouth is and, and, and putting uh, actual dollars on the table. So I'm very hopeful in that regard. Um, the local community opposition, I just hope that this missing middle and single family zoning doesn't cause a distraction to providing homeownership resources at the local level. Yeah. And I think that that is, you know, so important to really help get a handle on how we are able to, as a society, uh, provide the resources that are required so that we can help people into home ownership. But you, 
you've been in this for a while and do you think, and I know that one of the things that you touched on was messaging, but have we as a society over-glorified the concept of home ownership? Uh, you know, yes and no. Um, <laughs> you know, the American dream, I was always thought the American dream was home ownership. But, you know, the American dream is to any to any industry, that's the American dream. You know, if you right. want a John Deere trailer, uh, John Deere that's the American dream for a farmer. Um, yes and no. And I don't want to, you know, I work for the National Association of Realtors, home ownership, but it's not only home ownership, it's ba basically private property rights. The land is, 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 mm. is the, our tabernacle. I mean, yes and no. Um, you know, rental, rental housing is important also. Um, uh, but, um, the thing is that, you know, home ownership is, is, you know, our country, what's our rate? Our rate is like the, the total rate is 63. We're actually lower than some other countries. I think uh, Spain has a higher home ownership rate. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not answering this thing fully because I'm kind of waffling both sides. So. No, no. And that's fine. Um, because my, my follow-up question to you on that was, um, ultimately, since for most of us, our home is our most important asset, right. um, how do you think that we can better, again, going back to the messaging, because, right. and, and I kind of am asking it in the sequence of, okay, is home ownership, or have we done that whole right. too right. much of, and so now it's like, okay, now that we're here, whether or not we like it, we are at this stage of, you know, you, you have your home, you own it. Right. Have we done, you know, whether or not you take it from your vantage point of your multiple different roads or even as a homeowner, right. do you think that we have given homeowners the tools to be able to um, manage the asset as yeah. they should, yeah. especially yeah. even in the messaging that we've done? Yeah. Okay. Great question. Now, now you're going to, you're going to let me talk for an hour. Um, now, and this is when, and, and, and full disclosure, I advise you on keeping late. This is one of the things that got me interested um, in your product. We, as a country, have not done enough for home ownership sustainability. Let me stress we, as a country, have not done enough for home ownership sustainability. We, as a country, have stood on our head. Uh, for financial literacy, for home ownership counseling, pre-purchase counseling. We have done a lot of that. A lot of it, we had to do it during the financial crisis with the risky lending, et cetera. We have a new federal agency, the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that's doing a good job with a lot of um, deliverables for homeowners on how to get a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. But what we have not done, we have not done enough for those that are in a home to keep the home and sustain the home, all right? And that's why I think the, um, the Keepingly app um, is probably going to be just as important um, as DocuSign and the electronic signatures, what that did for real estate. I believe keepingly 
uh, its product will do for home ownership uh, sustainability. And primarily those that are just entering the market um, and do not know what to do with that asset, the, the home asset. So um, now I think um, I think that's uh, uh, on the report card needs to improve. And uh, hopefully uh, with the work that you're doing, Daniel, with Keepingly, uh, that will uh, come to fruition. Yeah, um, you know, thank you, Joe, for, for those, you know, words. Um, but ultimately, I think that, you know, that's, you know, even all my conversations, um, I see basically the same thing. Um, and it's so, I would say, critically important that we make sure that we are giving people the toolkit to be able to really manage their homes. It in a conversation I had recently, you know, there has been so much programs set up to help people get into the homes. But, and some of these people go into these homes and, you know, they, they do the programs, you know, so that they can qualify for the loans, right. but not necessarily always going through the follow-up and the routine to ensure that, okay, am I sustaining the home? So that is one of those critical components that, you know, I had a conversation up to yesterday where uh, I'm like, you know, ultimately it is for us. And, and for me, because real estate is the largest asset category in the world, I think it's so important, you know, that we help people and we, we give them the tools. So, you know, that for me has been one of those things that, we, we have this great opportunity to create way more engagement on that. And, you know, what we're building, I don't think is a panacea. You know, it solves every issue, but at least it kind of gets us thinking on that trajectory of, okay, how can we solve these problems? So, Joe, um, we're coming down very uh, quickly to the end of, you know, this podcast, um, trying to get a mirror back on. Um, but, you know, from your standpoint, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years, you've lived through 2008, you've gone through that um, whole experience. Between 2008, which that financial crisis versus 2021-22, what do you think uh, were like the fundamental differences and, you know, there were the doomsayers who were saying, hey, well, we're going to go into another recession um, and housing is going to be hit, though housing seems to have flipped the script on this occasion. Yeah. How do you think that they they were different? And then from your vantage point, you know, both from a policymaking and but from just, you know, an, a bird's eye view 45 years in, how do you think we avoid such crisis in the future, especially around the housing sector? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the financial meltdown was totally different than the COVID thing. Um, that was, uh, I, you know, we did it on to ourselves in 2007 and 2008, risky lending, et cetera. People were, people were just piggish. All right. Um, COVID was an act of something. It came out of the blue. It was, it caught us unprepared. Um, and actually working at the National Association of Realtors, it was interesting because 
you know, we thought even housing was going to go down. Housing actually flourished because during COVID, the home, home was was the epicenter of life since they were quarantined and everyone was quarantined in their cocoon. So the home actually um, was um, was basically boosted during the, the during the pandemic. Um, bubbles, etc., uh, really not going to happen because it wasn't based on credit. Uh, the pricing and then the inflation is all manageable. I don't, you know, if you look at all the economists, everyone agrees we're not going to have a bubble. There's not going to be, and even if there's a recession, the bubble they're going to be. They're going to be. It's it. It will be by area and not not uh, uh, national, not not national. And yeah. so, so that's so that's the good news. We have a lot of challenges. Um, you know, we we got uh, and the biggest challenge is the supply. I mean, you know, I hate to beat on it, but that is the number one problem. It's the supply and demand. And we as a country have not built the supply. And, um, um, you know, I'm looking out my window here in my neighborhood. Uh, we have 1,600 units of apartments being built right now. All right, 1,600 units um, and 500 are going to be online in another year. I mean, and th this is this is not for the bottom rung. These are these are market rate. These are going to be hefty rents. So um, we as a country have to think smarter. We have to uh, do more um, uh, entry level uh, building of housing. Um, and, and there's a lot being done. There's uh, manufactured housing. Um, Daniel, you know, a, a friend of ours uh, is building in uh, Maryland 250 affordable units in, uh, uh, what is it, Frederick? Um, so more of that has to be done. Um, we're reading in the newspapers, a lot is being done in our community. So my, you know, being a federal person all these years, I look at the federal I don't look at the federal government to help us. To help us, it's the state and local communities. That is where everything is happening. Um, money is really, I don't think the problem. I think the problem is the will to get things done at the state and local level. And um, um, in the past three years, I think we've seen a lot of good things happening uh, at the state and local level. So um, I'm hoping that we get more people uh, into, uh, into a home. And I'm hoping uh, that we as a country and we as a private sector business area do everything in our power to make sure that those that get into a home or have the sustainability to keep the home and manage the home and let its asset grow, which I believe I just recited some of the keepingly tagline, <laughs> you can finish it if you want. But uh, that's, uh, I firmly believe in that and I'm very optimistic uh, in that regard. Fantastic. Um, Joe, so my final question to you is this. 45 years in the industry, um, multiple agencies. If you had a magic wand to be able to fix housing problems, and I know supply is one of your issues, but if you had a magic wand, what would be the issue that you fix? Number one, both from the policy side, and number two, just anything in general to, to help housing or, or to make it you know, better. 
Wow. Okay. From the policy side, I would say the voucher program, which is dear to my heart because that's the first thing I worked on uh, when I was at HUD in 1974, I would really um, uh, clean up the program, listen to the landlords, listen to the tenants, but but de-bureaucratize it. De-bureaucratize it so landlords will want to use it have performance measures, accountability that's transparent and understandable. So I, that would be that would be um, uh, number one. I, I would fix that. Um, the other thing is uh, be direct, be transparent, and be open. I mean, you know, um, the supply supply is our problem. I mean, when you look at everything, you, we need. You know, we need more housing and what we should be doing is retrofitting. And we're beginning to do that as a country downtown D.C. They're retrofitting some office buildings into uh, uh, into into housing. So that's what I would do. Fantastic. Um, Joe, thank you very much for your time uh, from Amira and I who got kicked off and she couldn't get back on. But um, it was a pleasure having you, and, and we need to have you back at some point. But we love that you've been able to provide. And I think that what we're trying to do here is really provide our, our listeners with context as to where we came from, right. where right. we are, and possibly a way into the future. Um, and as you mentioned, what you would do about Section 8, I think that that is pretty instructive. I think that, you know, hopefully we have some people from the Department of Housing listening who, you know, really take on board the what you have, you know, just said. But ultimately, it's about, you know, us finding ways to make the housing sector better because, you know, you you know my mantra, which is helping homeowners to be to be empowered to be able to make the best decisions for themselves and their families, especially around their housing assets. And so I think that, you know, your advice and your info is pretty instructive. So thank you very much, Joe, for your time and for sitting with us here on the Keepwise okay. uh, with Keeping Me podcast. Thank you Cheers. very much. Have a good weekend. Thanks. All right.